0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things.
1: For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Good morning. As Kyle said, we're in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you this morning for this Sunday. Each week we thank you for this day out of our week where we get to gather in this moment and recenter our lives around you. We have your word open, and now we just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our ears, Lord, we want to open our whole lives to you to be able to receive the gifts that you want to give us this morning through your word. So, Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to be here to be the agent of those gifts. Pour yourselves out, pour yourself out upon us, we pray, and, and just speak to us. That's our prayer this morning as we pray each week, God, that you minister to us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can take your seat there. Well, worms that don't die, fire that can't be quenched, cutting off your limbs, seasoned with fire. Good morning. Welcome to church. As Kyle said, we are midway, just past halfway through our study in the Gospel of Mark that we've entitled, again, as Kyle mentioned, we've entitled it The Way. Looking at the way of Jesus. Mark, as is every other gospel, is all about Jesus. Mark especially is about the way of Jesus. How he navigated and lived his life. And that is what uh, we've been exploring here. Every week we've been looking at a different aspect of the way of Jesus. And so, uh, this morning, if you'd like to take notes, go ahead and write this idea down. This morning, from this passage, we want to look at the way Jesus warned. The way Jesus warned. That's what we see Jesus doing here in a a sort of peculiar, unusual fashion. Jesus is warning his listeners in regards to some certain and serious potential future judgment. Now, this might not be how we naturally come to think about Jesus. You know, Jesus meek and mild, right? Jesus, who just a few verses ago had a, what was so approachable and so gentle and lowly, as we've been studying in our summer book club, that he welcomes a young child to sit on his lap. Uh, so this concept of like fire and brimstone Jesus might be so far from our imagination to where we read something like this and we're like, did Jesus even say these things? But when you study the whole account of Scripture, what you find with Jesus is that warning people and speaking the the loving truth about coming judgment was a central part of his ministry. Not just much, but I would even say most of Jesus' ministry involved lovingly warning people about what the future may hold if they don't change course, if they continue on their way. This is a loving thing to do, to to warn someone of any potential danger. You know, Jesus spoke of hell and judgment more than any other person in Scripture. Does that surprise you? Not Isaiah, you know, not even Paul. But Jesus himself was the one, out of all the prophets in the Bible, Jesus was the, the warning prophet. He would speak to cities and to people and individuals and to groups. And even to those who are living in a certain course of sin, he would speak to them with a real sense of watch out. Uh, Not only that, but Jesus spoke about, listen to this, he spoke about these things, judgment and and future peril for those rebelling against God. He spoke about that more than he did heaven even and salvation. Now, now why is that? I want to just stop for a second and think about that. Why is it that Jesus makes this such a major part of his ministry? And I think, you know, this is my speculation, but I think it, it would, it's because if anybody else were to be the one who spoke about it the most, we would dismiss them and say, well, Jesus never really taught that. Jesus never really emphasized that. And so, you know, we don't have an excuse here, right? Jesus is the one who's often doing the warning. He's the one who's often emphasizing this reality of potential future Future judgment, a central part of his ministry, was warning people of what was to come. Uh, and Now, why is that? Well, let me give you two reasons why Jesus was about that. Uh, number one, because God cannot be mocked. That's one principle in Scripture that we see. Paul uh, describes it here in Galatians 6-7. This is just a truth of the universe, okay? That we should not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, Paul says, he will also be. Reap. In other words, um, there's no such thing as a life that's lived in mockery of God that in the end gets away with it. That's what the scripture is saying here. God, nobody lives in sinful rebellion against God and then just you know skirts off and it's fine. God cannot be mocked. Maybe in the present, we uh, because it's funny you look at this and you go, well, I don't know if that's true. I've definitely seen people mock God before, and that's that's certainly true. But eternally, God cannot be mocked. And the second reason is because not just that God cannot be mocked, but because God, number two, is just and good. He's just and he's good. Here's what Psalm 89, verse 14 says. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Then David says, mercy and truth go before your face. Isn't this interesting? We know that God is depicted in Scripture as the As the ruler, who's the king reigning over all the universe. And he sits enthroned not just as king, but also as judge. And let me just say, there's no one else that we would rather have in that seat than God himself. This is, by the way, the supreme, supreme, supreme court. This is the supremest court in the land. This is the highest justice in the world. It's this throne and God sits upon it and it says this, that the foundation of God's throne is he looks upon the world and he sees righteousness and wickedness. As he sees he's good and he sees evil, the foundation of his throne of judgment is righteousness and justice. Some people say, well, how, how could a good God execute such justice? How could a good God bring such judgment? And really, the answer is in the question. Because he's good. That's the answer, right? It's it's because he's good, because he's righteous. It's what we all long for. Now, this is kind of tough for us, you know, as sophisticated Western American thinkers. It's hard for us to really grasp and, and maybe I should say accept any depiction of God as that being uh, one of, of justice and judgment. Um, and largely that's because we live in a culture that, that would really sort of prefer more the turn-the-other-cheek verses. We love that one, as long as I don't really have to apply it too hard. But, like, especially as it applies to God. Like, that's just kind of our cultural values. Love, 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 tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. That's just kind of built into the ethos of our culture. It can slowly even sleep, uh, slip into our hearts. Um, and so we tend to struggle with the idea of a God who brings judgment rather than a God who would just let everybody off the hook and, and kind of just overlook the, every transgression and not bring justice. That's kind of where we, we tend to go. And I want to just say that largely, well, what the Bible calls this, first and foremost, is idolatry, is what it's called. Okay? Uh, and idolatry, here's when it happens, especially with God. It's when we isolate an attribute of God. Say his love and his mercy. Idolatry happens when we isolate an attribute of God and we elevate it above all others. And and we begin to worship a God that we make in our own image, in our own imagination. Do you see the idea there? We're like, I like this attribute. Let's just kind of buffet line, trail mix God, leave the peanuts, take the M&Ms, and we're going to go with the mercy and the love. And people say this all the time, like, my Jesus would never do that. It's like, well, we don't worship your Jesus, okay? We don't worship our Jesus. We worship Jesus. We worship God in truth. And so we want to be careful that we don't elevate or isolate attributes of God, elevate them above all others to sort of, you know, it's like build a bear, but God. Build a God in your own image to be who you want him to be. And so Scripture presents a God of completion, a God full of truth, who is both, notice it even here, just and merciful. You see that? He's merciful and gracious, yet he is just and he is righteous. This might be difficult for us, but let me say this. It's not as difficult for people living in other parts of the world. In large part, our difficulty accepting a God of judgment It comes from our cultural concepts, like I was saying, we're culturally conditioned. If you go to other parts of the world, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) In other parts of the world, people are a lot more familiar with like the prayers of David. You know the Psalms, where you're like, Lord, we just we pray that you would avenge those that want to kill us. Just take them down, Lord. Smash their teeth in their mouth in Jesus' name, Amen. Like, there's some heavy verses there in the Psalms. Now, there's people in other parts of the world that are listen. They're so regularly face to face with evil and injustice, that they're crying out for God to bring justice. Do you know what I'm saying? So in a lot of ways, our American preference of God's love and mercy is really a first world privilege. Do you get that? Because we're not exposed to as much of the difficulty and suffering to where we've actually had to say, God, please bring justice. We're sheltered and shielded in large part to the evil that this world world has. In some ways, I'm not fully, obviously, Obviously, all you have to do is turn on your news or your smartphone, and you can get a lens into the evil that's in this world. But but as hard as it is for us, um, one of the, C.S. Lewis talked about this, like one of the biggest errors in human thought and secularism, uh, one of the biggest problems with how people understand God is he talked about something called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, and there's also a form of it called cultural snobbery. Where you assume that your vantage point of life or God or who he is and what he's like, that you assume that it's best based upon, really, the fact that you're the furthest developed human since. You know, you're like, we're here, we're the West, we're the most progressive, we're the most progressed, so look at us, we should understand God more than you. Not those smart people hundreds of years ago who thought about these things, they, they haven't got to this day and age, Right? We're the the generation of Netflix. I mean, come on, we're the smartest. So it's chronological snobbery. And there's also a form of cultural snobbery where where you think that all there is to be known and understood about God is gonna come from your own cultural context. And here's the point that we're trying to make here. Our understanding of God, it doesn't come from what form of, of the timeline we fall on in history. It doesn't come from even our cultural conditioning or even our individual preferences. But we worship God as he has revealed himself in his word. That's how we know him to be, the truth of God. Now, this is the best news, that God has revealed himself. It's his self-revelation. Here is who I am. And th- there is no clearer revelation of God than what we have here with the person of Jesus. So, again, maybe a little, it may be a little difficult for us to grasp this, but let me say this. Jesus is speaking to, to his listeners here, and they're not having a hard time with the concept Of a future judgment. These this strong language Jesus uses about hell and about eternity and about justice and about sin being punished. They're they're like, they're tracking with Jesus. They're like, yep, I get that. Listen closely though. Though that's true, there was a hard time that they were having, I'm sure, with the type of sins that Jesus says. Is worthy of this punishment. That's the part that probably stumbled them. Jesus isn't talking about here a kind of judgment that, that comes upon, you know, bad living, beha- you know, those people that behave that way, you know, them, okay? Here, I'm sure Jesus sort of shocked his listeners, not because of the idea of judgment, but again, because of the types of sins that Jesus is warning against. Now, if you you look at the context of what we read here, it's really important to know this. Because this teaching that Jesus uses here of if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Your eye, pluck it out. That's a fun one. You don't cut it off, you pluck it out, right? Your foot, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. In another context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this illustration, this type of teaching, to talk about sexual purity and sexual sin and immorality. And he employs this line of thinking which the the idea, by the way, is it's metaphorical. It's meant to say have a radical approach to your sin. Don't don't take it lightly. It's a severe issue, and so he uses strong language to communicate a strong point. But here in this context, when Jesus is using this concept about future judgment, watch out for the dangers of sin. It, the context here has to do with listen closely relational sins, not behavioral sins. But relational sins, the, the sins that we commit against each other, Jesus is saying it's those sins that are also worthy of judgment. That's shocking. It's just not how we think. We tend to think it's this behavior I'm doing that God's going to judge. No, no, God cares about how you treat people. In fact, Jesus, there's similar language that he used in the Sermon on the Mount to really wake people up. Um, And let me say specifically, like to wake up religious people, because religious people are really good at being on their best behavior and treating everybody else like garbage and think they're holy because of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't just a Pharisee thing, this is a 21st century Christian thing. Have you ever seen the meme of the lady that goes to church and then she goes to Starbucks and yells at the barista? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the quintessential example of it. I'm on my best behavior, but now I'm going to treat my waitress like garbage when I go out to the restaurant as a Christian after church. Worship was just great. Where's my food, you know? So, so this, Jesus wants to wake us up out of this flawed thinking that just thinks that all that God cares about are behavioral things. No, there's judgment not just for behavioral sins. In the judgment to come, there will be judgment for how people have treated other people. It's a big deal. Now, Jesus really shocks the system in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this. And you just imagine, there's a massive crowd listening to Jesus teach. And he says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Yeah, Okay, maybe that's the one relational sin that God is really going to judge. And that's how they're thinking. Behavioral sins really matter. But how you treat people, okay, don't kill them. Just don't kill them. That's all that God really cares about. Jesus goes on to say, look at the language he uses. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raga! I just felt like yelling it because there's an exclamation point there, but now you go, I'm not guilty of doing that this week. I haven't yelled raka at anybody this week. I'm not in danger of judgment, okay? But it's a demeaning, derogatory term. You shall be in danger, he says of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, just reading this without any, uh, you know, uh, basic tools of Bible interpretation, how many of you guys would say you've been in danger of hellfire and judgment before? Okay. You're like, I said raka last week, actually. Yeah, so... Jesus is trying to shock our system to think about the fact that sin, all kinds of sin, is a sin against the holy God that will be judged, even the smallest quote-unquote sins. What Jesus is also saying here is that sin's like murder. Murder comes from, listen closely, the same place in the heart that every one of us have all been to. That place of hatred, bitterness, despising someone. That's that's where murder is rooted in. It overflows out of that. Think of Cain and Abel. It's a great example of that. So so Jesus is using, again, this strong language to wake us up to the concept that God is really concerned. It matters to God with how we treat each other. Uh, let Let me say it this way. There's an emphasis both in what Isaac read for our scripture in Mark 9 to what we read here in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the emphasis. We cannot separate how we relate to God from how we relate to others. We can't make that separation. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God has made a, disti- uh, God has made a union here between how we relate to him and how we treat others. It matters. Uh, John really explains it in a lot of black and white terms. That's why I love the Gospel, uh, the gospel of John. I love 1 John. John's very black and white. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. You see the connection? I mean, that's pretty black and white and difficult to read. He's like, here's the evidence of your relationship with God. It's your relationship with others. It's how you treat them. It matters. He goes on to say this. If someone says, I love God. If someone says that, someone I don't know why you'd walk up and just be like, I love God, Maybe that's cool actually, boasting in the Lord, right? I love God, and he hates his brother, so you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, he says, you're a liar, you don't love God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now this is really tough, isn't this? Because I, I, I'm just so good at reducing my relationship with God to this linear up-and-down thing. And I'm kind of like, okay, every now and then I'll kind of think about how I'm treating people. But God's like, no, it's all connected. It's one and the same. Mother Teresa, I've quoted Mother Teresa in uh, two weeks in a row now. First time I've ever quoted her in my life. And I'm quoting her two weeks in a row. Mother Teresa has just been on fire lately, Mother Teresa. Okay, that was weird. Mother Teresa... She takes this so literally that she says this. She says, according to 1 John, we really only love God as much as we love the person we love the least. I love you, God, but I hate my brother. You can't separate the two. Because the, the overflow of the love of God, of knowing God and loving him, is that love begins to change you and your heart towards others and your treatment towards others. This, and Paul's all over this. Paul is all over the idea of like, hey, you can know it all. You can do it all. You can speak it all. But without love, it's nothing. You're missing it. You're sounding brass. You're a clanging cymbal. You're nothing. It's profiting you nothing. Knowledge builds up, but it's love that edifies. Listen, this is what Jesus is getting at here. Because the disciples have been missing it, man. They've been missing it. It's just a few verses earlier. Well, let's go back even further. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus comes down from the mountain and his disciples are unable to deliver this young boy from the demonic oppression that's upon him. They were unable. Jesus said some things only come out through prayer and fasting. They were working in the flesh to try to get a solution. And he goes, no, you're going to need, uh, as Pastor Jim Gallagher was here and he taught, you're going to need spiritual energies to see the victory come here. A few, a few moments later, Um, There are a couple other guys who are, so the disciples failed to cast out the demon. The story tells us that maybe a day or so later, the disciples encounter a man who, here's the, get this, they are, these people are serving Jesus, they're for the cause of Jesus, but they're not a part of the gang, they're not a part of the twelve, they're not in the clique, right, sorry, there's no more room for you guys, not enough seats, okay? So so they look on at this guy, and and here's what this guy's doing, he's casting out demons, so they're like, We couldn't do that. Why is he doing that? He shouldn't be doing that. That's kind of their mode. And so they try to forbid him from serving Jesus because he didn't fit in their box, right? They're not on my team. They don't go to my church. That was kind of the mindset. Sectarianism. We're going to try to exclude people from serving God if they don't, again, fit into some neat category that we have created. And Jesus is rebuking this spirit. He's warning the disciples against this kind of approach to life. And here's what he goes on to do. And this is the verses that we read. Let's go through it line by line. Uh, What Jesus does in the verses we read is he warns the disciples, and he warns us too, against four types of relational sins that we should take seriously. So serious that he, again, uses the metaphor of we might want to cut our hands off if it's causing us to sin. That's the idea. Four types of of ways that we can sin against one another that Jesus warns us against. The first was there in verse 42. By the way, today my points are just spiritual points. There's no like points, there's points. Points, okay. He says this in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, here's the first thing he says, here's the first sin he warns against. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble... He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he went scuba diving. He were thrown into the sea. What a, what a dark picture Jesus paints here. In that context, it's an ag- agricultural context, an agrarian society. They understood things like millstones, the, the language Jesus would use, a little bit foreign to us. But, but Jesus is talking about a preferable death a preferable death that he calls, you know, the way of the millstone, right? I found this online. Someone actually put the verse on it. It's really beautiful. It's like a, uh, like this is what you'd post on your Instagram. Good morning, everybody. Okay. This is a millstone, this is a smaller millstone. It, it was used to crush the grain. And, uh, and the wheat, and what, what you would do is you'd have a, a donkey hooked up to it. who would walk, They would walk around in circles, and that was really the only animal that could bear the weight of a millstone. It was a couple tons. It was super heavy. There's only one person in history that actually lifted the weight of a millstone. Does anybody know who that is in the Bible? Of course, the strong guy, right? Samson! He does everything strong. Who's the guy in the Bible that did a thing strong? Samson. Okay, that's the answer. All right? And 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 the idea here is it's it's a gruesome idea to even think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you'd be better off taking that millstone and you know putting a gold chain around that thing, wear it as a necklace, and get mafioso style thrown into the bottom of the Veranzano. Then he says that's you're better. Off. He's saying this you're better off dead. I mean this is a, he's using strong language to describe like a gruesome way to go. But he's like, that'd be your best case scenario. This is harsh. Then instead to be someone who's alive and you're causing, here's the sin, you're causing a little one who believes in me to stumble. That's the sin. You see it? Now, the little ones. Now, in the context here, we might think of the child Jesus put on his lap, right? A little one. And I think there's, there's truth to that. I think they fall under the category of the vulnerable, but who are the little ones? Well, Jesus tells us the little ones are those who believe in him. Just a verse prior, Jesus is speaking about a person that is unimportant to our cultural standards. They don't have any real like church clearance to serve God. They're maybe new in the faith and they're giving a cup of water in Jesus's name, like kind of an insignificant gift. They're just kind of little, in the eyes of man. Do you get the picture? And yet they're serving God. The idea is this, that it's weak, it's a vulnerable faith, but it's pure, and it's unique, and it's genuine. And the disciples have this tendency to pounce on anybody who's not in their group, and Jesus is like, stop doing that. That's dangerous behavior. to to cause one of these little ones, he says, they believe in me, and what you do is you cause them to stumble. Now, the word stumble used here, it's from the Greek word scandalon. It's used a lot in the Bible to talk about offenses. The noun form of the word scandalon, or to scandalize, is is the the stick that you would put on a trap that would get moved out so that the trap could fall on whatever you're trying to catch. The picture here, Jesus is saying, is, is... don't be someone who traps someone, who, who's led to injure someone who's weak in faith. I mean, is there anything worse that we can imagine? Than, it breaks my heart to see this have happened. But, but to have someone who's new in the faith, who is just, they don't know it all, they're figuring things out. Have you ever seen this happen and a Christian just comes with all the knowledge in the world and they bulldoze that person? They injure their faith. Or, or maybe it's not just what they do to them, but it's how they represent Jesus. That's the idea. Now, think about your life. We've all had people in our life who have both strengthened our faith in Jesus and injured our faith in Jesus. Is that true for you? It's true for me. There's people in my life who, without them, my faith in Jesus would not be, for however, however much strength my faith has, it wouldn't be as strong as my faith is without these people who came along and they found me in the weak state that I'm in and they made me stronger. Aren't you thankful for those people that come alongside of you in your weakness and they make you stronger? And I've had people who were stronger than me and they made me weaker. I mean, this, goes, this is just like up in the face of the heart of God for the strong to hurt the spiritually weak. That's the context here. Well what this does is it should really challenge us to think about our lives, to think about the fact that like how you live in relationship to other people's faith, it matters. It matters. And, and you could even look at yourself and go, who am I? am I? Am I the kind of person that's strengthening the faith of others? Or am I like a bulldozer? And do I we- is there anything I've done that have weakened that's weakened the faith of others? Paul says it this way. He's speaking to the church, and in, in every church, there are those who are stronger in faith, who've been walking with Jesus longer, and those who are weaker in faith. Uh, weakness doesn't mean that you don't have strong faith. It's just you're, you're still growing and learning, and you, don't, you know, and you don't have all the answers. By the way, no one does, but you know what I'm saying? You don't, you don't know your way around the Bible yet. Well, it's okay. This, this is the kind of person Jesus looks at, and he goes, I love them. I want them here. I want them to grow. I have a heart for them. And Paul says in the church, you got to make sure, he says this, we who are strong, we ought to bear with, I love this word, the scruples of the weak. Actually, I'm not sure if I love it or not. Part of me is like, I like saying that, then I say it twice, I'm like, I don't like saying that word, scruples. But anyway, it's beside the point, okay? Please bear with my scruples here, okay? We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples, the weaknesses of the weak, and not please ourselves. This is a me-centered Christian life. Let each of you, we talked about this last week, being outward in our thinking. Consider where other people are at before we pounce on them. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. That's the goal, building up. For even Christ did not please himself. Like, aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't leave you or come to you in the weak state you were in and just crush you with his strength? No, he's the one who comes and lays aside that strength, and he relates to the weak, and he pulls and lifts them up. This is the picture that we have of Christ. This is the exhortation for the church. How is my life affecting, either positively or negatively, those, the faith of those around me? This is what Jesus says. And if you're someone who's hurting and injuring people's faith, in the name of truth, in the name of right, Jesus says, okay, you're better off dead. That's what he says than being alive and bringing death around you. It's an interesting concept. But it's the first thing he warns us against. I mean, hey, these aren't my words. These are Jesus. He's the one who said it. Millstone idea. It's crazy. Now next, I want you to see this next thing that Jesus does. So he warns us against injuring somebody who's weak in faith as opposed to reaching out the hand and helping build them up and strengthen them. That's the contrast. Um, that's always the picture of the heart of God too. It's just this outstretched hand. Not this like, no, 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 but it's like, come here, let me help you grow. Now, Jesus then goes on to use the hyperbole of uh, the familiar language he uses of going to radical measures to not sin against someone with the hand, the eye, and the foot. Now, let's go to these next verses. Here's, here's what Jesus says. And remember, this is typically used like in, in like accountability groups and stuff, and there's context for that. But in this section... It's used to describe relationships. And Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So, the first way we can sin against someone is with our hand. He says, it's better for you to enter life maimed, enter into life maimed, rather than have two hands and go to hell, into the fire that should never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is speaking in this repetitive structure here. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Wait, did I skip a verse? Maybe. Here we go. supposed to be there. If your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. Then he talks about the foot. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. So so Jesus, again, is using this hyperbolic language to, to, to wake us up out of our apathy for how we treat people, and he gives these three categories of ways that we need to be watchful for how we can sin against people. It's like hand, foot, mouth disease, but it's worse, okay? Hand, eye, and foot. Jesus, we just pray against hand, foot, mouth disease in our church, in Jesus' name, amen. It's for all the parents who have gone through that before. This is worse than that, okay? Jesus says we need to be on guard, we need to be radical in our approach for how we might sin against someone with our hands. Think about this. He says we can sin against them with our eye, And we can sin against them, he says, even with our foot. Now, if we could just kind of imagine what each of these could look like, I think we could create some alternatives for how we're called to live. And I love that Jesus is using this picture here. Um, Paul speaks about this. Look at this in Romans 6. Paul talks about the new life in Christ and how it should relate to our hands, our eyes, and our feet. Actually, the Bible, t- the Bible tells you what to do with your hands and eyes and feet. In Romans 6, uh, 13, Paul says as Christians now, we don't present our members, our hands, our eyes, and our feet, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, which is, apart from Jesus, what we're bound to do. We can't help but sin. You have to sin. The, the, the flesh is, uh, your, your will is not so much free, as much as it's bound by sin. And, and prior to Christ, we we were These instruments of sin. Our hands were instruments of sin. Apart from Jesus, our eyes are instruments of sin for the enemy. He uses our hands, our eyes, and our feet to, to bring damage. He says, but instead, here's how we're called to live. We're to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead in Jesus. And we're to present our hands, our eyes, and our feet to Jesus. And we say, here we are. Here's my members. And I want to present myself to you as an instrument of God. Here's my hand, God. May it be an instrument in your hand. Not an instrument of evil. God, here's my eye. I'm giving you my eye. Help me see in a righteous way. God, here's my feet. I want to go where you're leading me. I want to go in righteousness. Do you see the idea here? This is what Jesus is getting at. Again, the hand, the eye, and the foot. Now, how can we, how can we do this? Both, how can we present our hands as unrighteousness, as unrighteous members, and how can we present our hands as righteous instruments in the hand of God? Right, let's start with the hand, okay? The hand. Um now the most obvious here, if you have kids, you know this one, like it's like step 1 of parenting is teaching your kids how to use their hands. What are your hands for? They're not for hitting. They're for loving, they're for cleaning up. Let's do that one more, okay? All right. But your hand, it's an it's an instrument, it's a gift from God. You know, it's interesting Jesus writing in that culture uh, at the time, Greek thought and, and, and paganism um, had popular castration trends to them. Ways that you can appease the gods by cutting off your limbs. I mean, there were some, re- there some real wicked, evil stuff back then. And to the Jew, I mean, that was such a, such a, a grievous and egregious thing to think about and to do. Uh, the Jews regarded the hands as the very gift, a precious gift from God. That God has given us to, you know, the Bible talks all about the hands of God. He puts man on earth and and puts man to work with his hands. The hands of of man created by God are are instruments, of meant to be instruments of good in the world. And so you can get the hyperbole that Jesus is using here to to think about how are you using, if your hand that's meant to be an instrument of good is actually becoming an instrument of evil, he said, cut it off. That's what Jesus says. Strong language. Um, Jesus is kind of an illustration of this and it's funny because I was looking back over chapter eight and nine which is where we've been the past few really past month and I saw a unique contrast between what our hands are meant to do in relationship versus what they're prone to do uh, first thing the best example of what your hand should do is Jesus right we would go back to mark eight where we see Jesus doing this over and over again that Jesus puts his hand on this man's eyes he does it twice and he made him look up, and he was restored, and he saw everyone clearly. You remember this guy? Jesus touched his eyes twice. He progressively brought him vision. The way Jesus did it was he used his hands. Imagine the very hand of God of Jesus touching your eye, making you well. This is a picture of what hands are meant to do. They're meant to bring life. They're meant to restore. They're meant to help. They're meant to heal. Now, notice the contrast. The next chapter says this. Jesus taught his disciples, next chapter, that the Son of Man is being betrayed, where? Into the hands of men. And they're going to kill them. And after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. So you have a contrast of care here. One set of hands is healing and helping. The other set of hands is harming and hurting. Um, Pardon the pun. The question I'd ask you this morning is, Are the people in your life in good what? Are they in good hands? Sincerely. Is your testimony in your life represent that which of of someone who is helping, like Jesus, is healing? You're bringing life, you're building up or are your hands those that tear down? Hands that destroy, that hurt and harm. Now, as adults, hopefully, it's not literally our physical hands that we have to keep in check. I mean, sometimes you know you got to tell yourself like, "Hey, okay, I don't want them to catch these hands." You know what I'm saying? You got to sometimes. There is times where you've got to keep your obviously the physical your physical nature in check. And this is as sarcastic as I'm being. Um, maybe maybe that's wrong for me to do that for how serious this really is and the reality of abuse and the reality. of of the physical turmoil that a lot of people can find themselves in at home and even personally. Um, But another kind of way to think about how you can harm the idea of your hands is the connection that Proverbs makes between your hands and your words. The the Bible uses kind of similar language um, about your words in Proverbs 12. It says, there is one who speaks like the piercing of the sword. This is interesting. So imagine like your words are an extension of, of your hands and the help or harm you're giving. But the tongue of the wise promotes health. So here's right here just a way to check and filter and go, Jesus, in my relationships, am I bringing life? Are my hands, are my words, are they healing hands? Are they healing words? Are they building up? Or are my words, notice this, like sword thrust. You see that? There's some words that are like, you might as well have a sword in your hand for how much harm you're causing. How painful it is. Your hands. Present them as instruments to God. Present your mouth as an instrument to God. Say, God, my, my mouth isn't mine. It's yours. Let no unwholesome word proceed from my mouth. Let the meditation of my mind and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, God. It's a great prayer to pray. So you have, Jesus talks about the hand. He also talks about the eye. He talks about sinning against someone with your hand. I Now, again, there's a lot of ways we could think about doing this. Like, have you ever given, come on, we've all sinned against that driver. You don't have to, you don't even have to, there is a way to sin against them with your hand. We know that one, too. But you can do that with your eye. You ever done it with your eye? You know what I'm talking about? There's just something about the eye. You can, like, really get someone with that that stank eye, right? And certainly we could joke about that a little bit and think about that in relationships and and yeah, body language matters, okay? So have a nicer face, okay? But when the scriptures talk about the eye, and I think of Jesus especially in Matthew 6, it, it, it speaks about perception, how we see people. So, so Jesus says this in Matthew 6, how important the eye is. He says the lamp of the body is the eye. It's the source of light. Because how you perceive is going to determine how much light or darkness is in your life. He says, if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you isn't light at all, but it's darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is like, how you perceive is a big deal. There's either darkness in your heart or there's light in your heart. There's either light coming out of your life or there's darkness in your life. And it's all connected to how you see. And it's just so easy to see people in a bad light. It's so easy to see people in a dark way. It's just like, and I just want to be honest about this. Like it's, for me, I struggle with this. It's not my natural inclination to see people the way God sees them. It's my natural inclination to see people the way I see them, which I assume is the way God sees them. And so how you, listen, you can sin against someone without touching them, without speaking to them. You can sin against someone by just the way that you despise them with your eye by the way you think about them. Anybody ever been guilty of this? I I mean, it's bitterness. It's Jesus calls it unrighteous judgment. It's sinful. It's drawing conclusions about people. Um, One of the biggest tendencies is to to see people based on their past mistakes and that be the entirety of who they are. Or or we just see people, we regard them according to the flesh. And listen, It can be really easy to have that filter, like just to be stuck in like negative culture helps just breathe that into us. It affects how we see, you know, rather than see people the way Jesus sees people as loved by God, to see people not just for the weaknesses, but but I'm gonna start seeing you for also your strengths. It's amazing what that will do in a marriage when you stop just counting the weaknesses, but you start celebrating the strengths. And, And you also start seeing them not just for their strengths, but you see them for who God's making them. You don't just see them for where they are or where they've been, but you see them for where they're going. You, you, you honor who God is making them to be, and that will actually help speed up that process too. <laughs> when you speak into that truth, you know, how you see with your eye. Here's what the Lord said to Samuel as he was going to anoint the next king of Israel. He said, don't look at his appearance or at his face. Be careful with how you look at him. Be careful with your eye. Be careful how you see them. He says, don't look at the physical He says, the Lord does not see as man sees. That's the principle right there, isn't it? Don't assume God sees the way you see. Don't assume the way that you see it is the way God sees it. Don't be too wise in your own eyes. A great way to pray is what I hope Samuel had in his heart as he was going to anoint this next king of Israel and he kept refusing all these different men lined up before him. He, he was praying this. I imagine this. God, give me eyes to see the way you see. Help me see people. Help me see the one the way you see them. And, and there's just something amazing that can happen when we are humble before God with this posture. When we, when we, by the way, when you go into work tomorrow, and you just think about your coworkers right now. It's like, mm, there's some of them you're like, I don't want to see them, okay? It's, I know the tendency. Or there's that person that you're going to encounter, or that person you're trying to avoid. What if you just started praying like this God, help me see the way you see? Give me eyes to see them the way you see them. Something's going to change. And usually that's what, what um, is before how we end up treating them. Now, lastly, Jesus talks about the foot. So Jesus has given us three ways that we can sin against people. We can sin against people with our hand. We can harm rather than help. We can sin against people with our eye by perceiving them wrongly and unrighteously. I'm not saying don't use judgment and don't, you know, you can measure fruit. The Bible says to do that. But, but it's, it's doing so with the posture that says, God, help me see the way you see. I don't want to just assume I see it right. And, and then we can, we can sin against people with our, well, with our feet. And that's a, another interesting one. Um, what my mind immediately went to is when you think about feet and sin in the Bible, there's a lot of language in Proverbs about how f- the feet can be swift to run to evil. And, and the word for it, there's a lot of different words for sin, right? We know there's iniquity, there's sin. Um, there's a, a popular Old Testament word, especially in the book of Leviticus, um, and it's the word trespass, right? To tre- you ever, have, you, have you ever sinned with your feet? On private ground, okay? You ever done that? Well, beach, okay? You know what I'm saying? You're trespassing. You're going where you shouldn't. Now, that's the language that the Bible uses to describe, one of the the pictures to describe sinning against God. There's rebellion, there's sin, there's iniquity, and then there's going where you should not go. Trespassing. Um, It's always God's heart to, to keep us in a safe place. Anytime God is like, hey, don't go there, it's not because he wants to limit you, it's actually because he knows that will enslave you, and he wants you free. And he knows we're going where you should and He knows where it's going to take you. And so that's one way we can sin against God is we can trespass. It's like, another way to think about it is like there's boundaries to a relationship. And when you're within the boundaries, there's respect and there's honor and there's love and there's security. But there's a way to go outside of those boundaries to trespass against that person and sin against them. Jesus gave a lot of ways that that can be done in marriage, both with sexual sin. You could do it emotionally. And it can be done in a lot of different ways. The, the idea of sinning against someone with our feet, I want you to think about it like this. It's, it's a matter of violating trust. It's a matter of going where I shouldn't go. You know, and every relationship should have some set of boundaries where it's like, uh, you know, remember Brittany and I getting married really, really young. We were just a bunch of passionate young Lovers, okay? I, I was like, I'm not going to say that, but I'm like, why not? I'm going to say it, all right? Passionate young kids is what we were. And, and we realized early on, like, we need to communicate, like, some healthy boundaries. If we're going to get an argument, like, this is a line that our feet don't cross. You know what I'm saying? These are words that we're not going to say. We're never going to use this word in this house. Divorce is never going to be an option. You know, there's a way that you can approach a relationship with, with safety and security. And there's a way you can sin against someone. Maybe, maybe somebody trusted you or you trusted them. And they violated your trust. They stepped outside of that security. Je- Jesus talks about the danger of that, how that can harm a relationship. He's warning us against a life That is wandering away from our commitments. I would say the contrast of sinning with our feet is just the word faithfulness. Like faithfulness has so much to do with where you go and where you don't go. And let me say this one: like, faithfulness has a lot to do with where you stay. You stay, like you, 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 you bear it, you press through it. We could sin against people. Here's here's one way you can sin against someone, you just abandon them and leave them because it gets too hard. You walk on, you're like, I want someone easier. Um, you could do that with a church. You can do that with a friendship. There's a lot of different ways we can take these sort of secular ideas and we can tack them onto covenantal, serious, relational things. But faithfulness, what a biblical value. The Bible says that, that most men will proclaim their own goodness. It's not hard to find a guy who will brag on himself, is what the Bible says. But who can find a faithful man? It's really faithfulness is rare. People that just show up and they stay and they remain in the relationship—they're faithful. They don't wander. Faithfulness. This is what God is wanting to produce in us as His people. Now, here's where it closes. I'll invite the band to come up as we close here. Jesus closes with some really interesting ideas. This is His final words about all this. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt salt is good amen it's good right I agree Jesus all right but if the salt loses its flavor how will you season it have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another that's still our context here what a interesting diagnosis what an interesting exhortation Jesus makes some promises, and then he makes some exhortations. Here's the promises that he makes. First thing he says is that everyone will be seasoned with fire. There's a lot of debate about what Jesus is talking about here. And everyone's like, I hope he's not talking about the hellfire he was talking about a couple of verses ago. Everybody's going to be seasoned with the hellfire. Woohoo! That's Yeah, it's not a woo-hoo. That's actually terrifying. Now, what kind of fire is Jesus talking about here? Is it the fire of the Holy Spirit? Is it the fire of judgment? It would be consistent with what Jesus is preparing his disciples for, to think about fire as a trial, a fiery trial. And, and, every, and it's almost like in the context too, has anybody, and here's how you can prove this is true, has anybody ever found that relationships can be trying? A little fiery, a little hot, might get burned, right? Jesus is like, are you a human? Are you in a relationship? You're, fire, fire, okay? You're going to get, it's, there's no breezy, easy way to navigate things. Unless you just isolate yourself and it's just you and yourself. G- Jesus is speaking of a reality, but here's what he's saying. There's an opportunity with that trial. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Isn't this interesting? Your relationships, as challenging as they are, they're not meant to make you worse. They're meant to make you better. In fact, you know, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. That's what he's saying. The encouragement, he says, is, as a Christian, we want to be salty salt. We don't want to be flavorless salts. We want to be salty, my friends. We want to be salty. That's the encouragement, that that there's a sense in which we are preservative here on this earth. We bring the life of Jesus everywhere around us. And Jesus says, it's your relationships that are helping that seasoning develop. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, like, as Christians, we're sacrifices to God. We're living sacrifices that are seasoned through the trials that we go through. We don't want to be those that are just bland through our relationships because of how we navigate them. We want to say, God, season me through this. Grow me through this. Increase my flavor as a Christian as I walk through this. Help me, God, help me be like you. Would you bless my hands? Would you help me see? Would you keep my feet faithful? So on the other side, there's not just someone that endured this relationship, but actually enjoyed you and the person and the process. This picture of seasoning. Now, there's a lot of truth in here that sets up some great reminders about who Jesus is. Um, we, We remember first and foremost that Jesus is the one who has never sinned against you with his hand. In fact, what he did is he stretched out his hands and he had a nail go through his hands as an expression of his faithful love for you. Jesus isn't someone who's ever sinned against you with his eye. Right now as he looks at you, it's not with an evil eye. It's not with an angry eye, but he sees you and he loves you. If you are in Christ, listen closely. He sees you as his child, whom he loves. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He sees you through the cross He sees you as forgiven. He sees you as dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. And if you're here today and you go, man, I'm not a Christian, but part of the reason why I am is because I know how God sees me. I want to remind you too, you know what the Bible says about how God sees you? The Bible says that even when you are sinning, God loves you. And he demonstrated his love for you in going to a cross. He sees you in love. He sees you as one that he's laid down his life for. He sees you, the Bible says, this language of of a lost sheep that he wants to return to him. And lastly, Jesus has never sinned against you or I with his feet. This is the best news of all. He's always been with you. And he'll always be there. There's no faithfulness like the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus. That time where you felt like he wasn't there, where you wandered, where you wandered and you imagine he did as well. His feet are faithful. He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And can I just remind you that it's the gospel, it's the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The fact of that, that is the fuel for us to love others. That's where the strength comes from. When I think about the fact that Jesus he didn't crush me in my weakness, but he walked with me in my weakness until I could get a little stronger. And even today, if you go, he's been doing that forever and I'm still weak, I want to say he's still with you. And when I think about that, that, that changes me. That changes me from the inside out. And it caused me to be someone that says, God, I, I don't want to do this on my own. I need your help. I know it matters how I treat people so help me love people the way you've loved me and that's the prescription in the whole Bible just as you've been loved go love just as you have been forgiven go forgive just as Christ laid down his life for you go lay down your life and when we stay in that place when we are centered not around our works but the works of Jesus for us we're gonna be different people we're gonna be different and so let's close with this thought in our minds that we need Jesus Uh, we, we know who we are apart from him And yet we can be confident with who we can be in him.